0: Welcome back to the International Chronicles of Chester Fritz. This is the first part of a two-part story, Hunt in the Romanian Hills. This story is a bit of a departure, in that it really isn't grounded in the Cthulhu mythos, and doesn't interact with any of Lovecraft's other works. In fact, I wasn't really sure what I was going to do with this story when it first started. I had a sense of what needed to happen, and I had a sense of the elements I wanted to use. But the story grew up organically as I explored both the character of Arnold Hunt and the history and mythology of Romania. I hope you find the story entertaining, and that it leaves you itching to hear the ending. With a scream of metal against metal, the train pulled away. The station was nearly empty, the other arrivals to Cluj having already drifted off to the station exit. Arnold Hunt shouldered his backpack and pulled up the handle on his roller bag. The plastic wheels of the bag clattered as he crossed the Twin Mountains pattern of cobblestones. Arnold had arranged to be met at the station, but the train had run nearly three hours late, and he was uncertain if his American guide would have bothered to wait. Arnold pushed through the door into the station. He had no sense of direction, but a couple of minutes of wandering was unlikely to leave him lost. He had been walking for little more than thirty seconds when he heard the shrill stap of a whistle, the kind that might be used to hail a cab in New York City. Arnold looked back over his shoulder to see a large man waving at him. The man had long blonde hair tied back and was leaning his shoulder casually against the wall, the dog end of a cigarette curling smoke from a loosely draped hand. Arnold reversed course. Pete? He called out cautiously as he approached the man. The man smiled, pushed himself up from the wall, flicked his cigarette away to skip across the stone cobbles in a linear cascade of sparks. Glad you could make it, Dr. Hunt, the man said extending a hand in greeting. Arnold took the offered hand, noting the edge of a Chicago accent in the man's voice. Pete was a solid two inches taller than Arnold, and at six foot three, few people towered over Arnold. Pete also had the professor on bulk. While Arnold was lean and in places knobbly, Pete was broad of shoulder and solid. Pete indicated that he had a car, and Arnold took note of the pronunciation of the word car, refining his estimate of Pete's accent to the North End. As they chatted, Arnold confessed that he had not eaten in a little over twelve hours, and Pete offered to take him out for a meal before dropping him off at his hotel. Arnold agreed, happy for the company. He had flown into Bucharest two days earlier, and after several failed attempts had managed to secure a train ticket to Cluj. He had taken the most direct route he could manage, which had crossed through the Carpathian Mountains. It had been a spectacular sight of brilliant green mountains, Broken by silver grey slashes of stone, and tufted here and there with darker clusters of trees. Arnold had little sense of what to expect from Romania, but the land was spectacular, a greener, lusher version of the black hills found in his native South Dakota. Flipping through his Let's Go Eastern Europe guide, Arnold had tried to get a more general sense of the topography. In his mind, the Carpathians circled like a snake around the Transylvanian plateau. Each bridge that soared across an open ravine or formidable valley was a reminder of how difficult and forbidding the terrain would have been before engineering and steel. The pub that Pete drove them to was more of a neighborhood alehouse than a proper restaurant. It had an aroma that melded savory steams and vaguely Middle Eastern spices. Pete took the liberty of ordering for both of them in a choppy but functional Romanian. Moments after taking their order, the server brought them a little bottle and two glasses. He shrugged and smiled and uncorked the bottle. "'It's a plum brandy, tohia. "'It's kind of a staple,' he explained as he poured a healthy portion into each of the two glasses. Arnold took a sip and wrinkled his nose at the serpy sweet flavors layered atop what was otherwise pure alcohol. Pete was grinning. "'Welcome to Romania, Dr. Hunt,' he said. "'Tushia is a common digestive, but it's also the tradition to serve guests the hard stuff.' Pete took a sip, winced, scowled, and then threw back the rest of the glass." How long have you been in Romania? Arnold asked as he forced another sip of the thin cough syrup-like drink. Pete leaned back. I've been here a little over three years, he said. I've been writing a bit, but mostly I do odd jobs with the local NGO community and occasionally help out with State Department projects. Arnold nodded. Well, thank you for picking me up and for agreeing to babysit me for a couple weeks. I really do appreciate having someone who has some local knowledge. Don't mention it. Pete said as he poured himself a new glass of Tokia and topped off the few sips Arnold had managed. The glass was left noticeably fuller than it had started. The last six months, I've been getting the cold shoulder from folks in the Romanian development circles, so I'm more than happy to do this favor. Arnold clocked that detail mentally, but opted not to follow up, as the server delivered two large bowls of reddish savory stew loaded with a number of items that Arnold couldn't quite place. Goulash, Pete explained as the server left. Arnold was about to raise objection that goulash was a fancy name for hamburger helper, but he stopped himself. It certainly smelled inviting. They ate for several minutes before Arnold asked Pete about his problem with the development community. Pete seemed conflicted about sharing. He made an obvious show of searching the room for would-be spies and rumor-mongers. Apparently satisfied that the locals were either trustworthy or non-English speakers, Pete leaned in for a confidential discussion. I'm going to tell you a story, but... Please don't pass it along. Or, if you do pass it along, just leave me out of it. Pete waited for Arnold's nod of assent before continuing. I was an election observer for the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe for the 1996 presidential election. I was part of a team of three. We were stationed in this tiny little village outside of Cluj. Things were running fine. It was the normal shit. People not familiar with the process, navigating illiteracy, local grievances. It was fine. I stepped out for a minute for a cigarette. I could have smoked in the courthouse or maybe leaned out the window, but I didn't. There was a lull, so one of the other observers and I ducked out. I think I was on my second or third cigarette when I saw a line of black SUVs kicking up dust on the dirt road. There were probably eight to ten of them. They were maybe four or five miles out when I first spotted the dust, but they closed on us fast. They circled the courthouse, and when they stopped like 20 guys in suits with AK-47s jumped out. Oh crap, Arnold said. He'd been following the story, but the world had turned fuzzy and warm. Pete nodded in confirmation, and then pulled a cigarette out of his jacket pocket. He offered one to Arnold, who declined. Pete set flame to the cigarette, taking a solid draw. The orange tip fired angry, and then cooled, and began belching smoke into the dark. They rushed the courthouse, Pete said. The guy who was smoking with me on the steps, Sergey. he tried to protest, but... He went down, when one of the thugs slammed the butt of an assault rifle into his face. They pushed everyone outside. We were all lined up, hands behind head, execution style. I kept thinking, holy shit, this went sideways fast. Then this guy got out of one of the SUVs. I couldn't see him at the start, but I got a decent look at him when he left the courthouse. He was a huge guy, burly, and with long black hair with these thick curls. He made a speech. My Romanian was pretty terrible at the time, so I don't really know what he said, but after the speech, he went into the courthouse. Arnold concentrated and pushed out the question, Did you ever find out who it was? When had he finished his glass of Turgia? He didn't remember, taking more than a sip or two. Pete leaned back. He took a deep draw of the cigarette and then extended his arm, letting it rest casually on the back of the bench. He was the fucking king of the Roma, Pete said. Arnold shrugged to show he didn't know what that meant. Pete waved his hand about, the orange bud at the end of the cigarette leaving a streak of light in Arnold's blurring vision. There's shit out there in the mountains, Pete said institutions and loyalties that run deep, and survived everything Ceausescu could throw at them. Did you know that there are valleys 50 miles from Cluj that haven't seen more than a handful of outsiders in 200 years? The Roma King, Arnold repeated. Pete nodded. The man moves like a ghost. But I saw him. The word in the village is that he heard about the election and that it was to be a secret ballot. He spent 15 minutes in the courthouse, all alone, and then he left. The thugs fell back to their SUVs, and drove off. We went in and checked the ballots, we counted, and recounted, and checked everything. It all matched up, except for one ballot that had been cast, that we couldn't account for. Arnold tried to whistle, but his lips were numb, and no sound came out. So what did you do? Arnold asked. Pete stubbed out his cigarette, and refilled Arnold's glass of Toika before topping off his own. We didn't do anything. We didn't talk about it, but we were all the same mind. The less said the better, and there was no mention of the incident in our report. Pete threw back the glass. And what was there to report? Nothing was really wrong. How do you square a story of armed gunmen storming a polling site with a single ballot being added to the count? It's fucking crazy. Arnold nodded. I can't even imagine, he said. Pete shrugged and lit another cigarette. Remember what Ben Franklin said about secrets? Pete asked. He didn't wait for a response, which was for the best as Arnold was far too drunk to offer a timely answer. Three can keep a secret if two of them are dead. Arnold nodded. He had heard that saying. The phone blared with a strangely metallic and mechanical buzzer that roused Arnold from his torpor. He flapped around with an arm, looking for a lamp. The light of the lamp allowed him to assess the clock and confirm that it was 4.26 a.m. and that it was far too early for a phone call. Another languid flap of his arm found the phone, and with a fumble, Arnold brought it to his ear. Dr. Arnold Hunt, the voice barked in a heavily accented English. Arnold managed a plausibly decipherable grunt of acknowledgement. You are surgeon, the voice asked. The fog of sleep immediately cleared from Arnold's mind. Yes, he croaked. He was sitting up, listening intently. There was a... The voice broke off, as if looking for the right word. Earthshake. Arnold began pushing blankets away, rolling out of his bed. How many? Hunt asked. Thousands, the voice said, more. There was a heavy pause. Be in front of hotel in ten minutes. Car will be waiting. If you have supplies, aspirin, gauze, anything, bring with you. Who is this? Arnold managed to ask. Captain Bogdan Dutescu, the Romanian Red Cross, Cluj. The voice declared, ten minutes, Dr. Hunt. Arnold heard the click of the phone and was left standing in the dim light, his heart pounding. Arnold took a deep breath and professional training asserted itself. The next minutes were a systematic fury. He tore through a pair of suitcases, assembling an impromptu call bag. Arnold stuffed a mix of toiletries into a backpack, mouthwash, eye drops, comb. He scrounged up earplugs that he used during the flight, and a two-liter bottle of water he had bought the previous day. He had some travel Tylenol and a stethoscope. Arnold grabbed a couple of candy bars from a side pocket of his carry-on suitcase and looted a notepad and pen from his hotel nightstand. A change of clothes was stuffed into the backpack. He slipped on a pair of running shoes that he used primarily for his treadmill, and charged out of the hotel room a mere eight minutes after the phone had gone dead. Arnold opted for the steps rather than the elevator to descend the ten stories to the ground level. A police car was waiting in front of the hotel, and the officer waved him over, opening the front door. Arnold tossed the backpack onto the floorboards and took a seat. The door slammed. Seatbelt clicked. The car surged forward, sirens blaring. The streets of Cluj were empty but the officer pushed the car toward 180 kilometers per hour as she merged onto the highway. Arnold gripped the door. Intellectually, he knew that people drove far more aggressively in Eastern Europe than in North Dakota, but the police officer was pushing the compact black car to its physical limits, and it was terrifying. As the city lights of Cluj disappeared behind, the darkness enveloped them. It became easier to ignore the rocketing speed of the police car. Fear was replaced by apprehension. He'd been in Cluj for nearly two weeks with most of his days spent researching medical history at Central University Library or consulting with practitioners at a local hospital, but he never ventured beyond the city center. As the police car raced out into the outer suburbs, Arnold became aware of the deep darkness that came in the hours before dawn. Spread out before him were the familiar constellations of the summer sky. He had spent enough nights under the South Dakota sky to recognize the finer details of the blazing star-spackled night. Yet a practiced eye was not needed to see the dozen or more blinking red and white lights moving at speed across the sky, helicopters. Arnold watched as the lights converged in a staggered procession on a single point and then relaunched into the sky. Arnold reached into his backpack looking for eyedrops and a water bottle. He had a momentary flash of the opening scene of M.A.S.H. with helicopters inbound. Arnold hummed a few bars of the M.A.S.H. theme song as he worked to deploy a pair of visine drops into each eye. The car swerved onto a side road, and the first drop missed its target, running down his cheek. Arnold grunted in irritation. A minute or so later, the car slammed to a halt. Arnold shouldered his bag and pushed the car door open. He thanked the driver as he stepped out, although he had no indication that the woman understood English. The drive to the Red Cross camp on the far outskirts of Cluj had been silent. She seemed to understand his meaning, raising a hand in an informal salute as she pulled away. Arnold surveyed the scene and picked out a tent that seemed administrative in aspect. A quick survey of the tent's interior confirmed that he had guessed more or less correctly. There were folded tables and stacks of papers. Crates and boxes of office supplies were tucked under the tables. A large topographical map was hanging against one wall, with hundreds of red pins clustered in an array along the Hungarian border. Tags hung from each pin. It was only a moment before one of the industrious Red Cross workers noticed him. The worker said something in Romanian and Arnold did his best exaggerated gesture of not understanding. He reached into his bag and withdrew a stethoscope, which he hoped would function as a universal sign for doctor. The worker nodded in understanding and led him out of the tent and across the camp to a second administrative tent. The tent was similarly equipped, but the crates and boxes stacked in the back were medical supplies rather than office accoutrements. Arnold was introduced to a stout middle-aged woman with a square face. The woman took a minute to size him up. Her English was functional, but not good. You are a doctor? she asked. Arnold affirmed that he was, and tried to explain that he had taught at the university, and worked as an ER surgeon for nearly ten years, with a specialty in internal medicine. Halfway through relaying his credentials, he realized the woman either wasn't listening, or didn't care, or couldn't understand. She was waving over an underling, and was passing orders. Arnold stood awkwardly as several others were called over. They discussed something of which he had no understanding. Finally, the square-faced woman turned her attention back to Arnold. "Go with Tessa? Wash hands. Get online. We have nurses that speak good English, Arnold nodded. It was time to go to work. Arnold set a self-locking clamp to an artery and began stitching. He'd gotten faster. His technique had turned crude, even brutal, but he had gotten faster. Such was the logic of field medicine. Arnold had read the book M.A.S.H. in med school and remembered vividly the description of Hawkeye Pierce's insecurity when new surgeons arrived from stateside. Hawkeye saw in those young men how much the medical field had moved on, refining new techniques, incorporating new technologies. By contrast, Korea had taught Hawkeye which corners to cut and how to ration his attention for those who could be saved. When Arnold had arrived at the Red Cross camp, he had been very much like those green doctors, fresh-faced, full of confidence. He was a great surgeon. he had brought dozens of people back when no one else could have saved them. he had always been compassionate with families. He would had a great working relationship with the nurses and doctors. He'd won awards. That was nearly 70 hours ago. In that time, Arnold's entire understanding of his profession had been upended and replaced with a single brutal metric. Stay on the line. Cut, fix, close. Stay on the line. Nothing else mattered. He had made the mistake with his second patient, trying to maximize the man's chance of survival. The next patient in the queue had died while he worked. She had a comparably minor injury it would have been easy to fix but he had spent an hour trying to close up dozens of tiny little punctures in an old man whose body was not cooperating every suture tore and required one or two additional tiny supporting stitches his first instinct when he was informed that the woman had died was to snarl at the austerity of the conditions he couldn't even dictate the suture materials he was forced to work with what was on hand and if the suture was braided When a monofilament strand would have served better, there was nothing to be done. While pulling a bone fragment from the liver of the next patient, Arnold had been reminded of Hawkeye Pierce's insights into the brutal calculus facing the wartime surgeon. The conditions were what they were. The patients were what they were. His job was to save those who could easily be saved, and to give those who were on the ropes a fighting chance. He couldn't give them more. The moral calculus couldn't balance any other way. Somewhere around hour 18, Arnold had started to shake. He had claimed a 15-minute break between splinting and pinning a shattered leg and closing up a punctured lung. He had left a surgery tent thinking that he would get fresh air. The adjoining tent was rancid with death and blood. This was not the hospital set up with separate wings for different tasks and specializations. Those waiting on surgery waited in an adjoining tent until it was their turn, or they died. The cries of pain, the moans of the dying had sobered him and put him back on the line. Around hour 27, his knees had buckled. Two of the nurses had held him down, while a third had stabbed him in the arm with a needle. Do not worry, Dr. Hunt, he had said with robotic effect, it is military-grade amphetamine. I will start the timer. You have another dose in 12 hours. Arnold had sworn and raged and shaken off the two remaining nurses. When he had regained his feet, he looked at the body he had been operating on, the face. He made a point never to look at the face. It had been a child, maybe a boy. The rage had faded. He had stripped off his surgical gown, scrubbed up, donned a new gown. He was back in the line in under ten minutes. The amphetamines had come in regular doses. Every twelve hours, he would feel the stab of a needle. He didn't stop working, because the bodies didn't stop. His hands were raw from repeated scrubbing, and were red with the mild chemical burn from soap. It hurt to bend certain joints, but that was largely irrelevant. He had to concentrate to feel the pain, and his concentration was totally consumed. Cut. Fix. Close. Arnold knelt next to the surgical table, listening to the nurse explain the preliminary diagnosis for the next patient. He had taken to kneeling between patients to conserve energy. There were no x-rays to inform the preliminary diagnosis that he was given. The charts which the nurses translated for him were more geographic than medical. He would be given a region of the body to slice into, and a list of symptoms that might indicate what he would find. How many hours until my next shot? He had asked. There were tears running down his face. It was purely a physiological reaction, and he didn't bother to control the flow. Five hours, Dr. Hunt, the nurse replied. Arnold nodded. He was on his fourth dose. He understood why the nurses so meticulously spaced them out. As much as he needed another hit, there were side effects. The audio hallucinations were getting worse. Much worse. He kept hearing his brother's voice calling out to him. That was impossible, of course. He knew that. It hurt, but he knew that. His brother had been dead for ten years. The voice was a perfect match. It was a hallucination, but it tore at him. When Arnold had first heard the voice, he had jerked in shock. He had been afraid to admit what was happening. He was scared. He had watched the nurses and the anesthesiologist, and had quickly come to the realization that they were also experiencing similar apparitions. They were all jumping at ghosts. One of the nurses had started tearing out her hair and had been relieved. Arnold noted that the nurses were not holding themselves to the prescribed 12-hour window between stimulant shots as much as he wanted. No, needed another hit. The sight of the nurse's bloody patch of scalp sobered him. He had wrestled with trickle telemania his entire life, pulling at eyebrows, eyelashes, pubic hair, and whiskers. He would push through but when the visual hallucination started, he would need to sleep. There was no way around it. He should have tapped out hours ago, but the bodies kept coming, and so he stayed on the line. Cut, fix, close. The patient before him was a woman with probable internal bleeding in the area of the lower abdomen. Arnold set scalpel to skin, took a breath and applied pressure as he pulled. Skin parted and his blade carefully split open the fascia opening up a pocket of innards. The first indication that something was wrong was the smell. It was the smell of spoiled milk with notes of mildew. Curious, Arnold had leaned in, trying to direct his headlamp into the three-inch opening. Movement caused him to jerk back. It wasn't the movement of a beating heart or of tissue reacting to errant electrical signals. It was the movement of a snake pit. Hundreds of wriggling, worm-like tendrils reacting angrily against the light. A greenish-purplish tentacle snaked out from the opening to feel at the sterile gauze set around the incision. The tent reacted. The anesthesiologist vomited. Arnold shrieked and jumped back. One of the nurses bolted the tent. The tentacle was pushing itself out of the flap with no conscious intent, but nonetheless working itself free through a random walk. Arnold's mind tried to understand what he was seeing as the thing flopped to the floor. He considered the possibility that it was a tapeworm, or a flatworm, or a guinea worm. That wasn't right. The thing was organic, but more flora than fauna. It was shaped like an elongated hand of ginger. Its movements revealed gills like those of a mushroom between segments fitted like bamboo. Arnold watched as it started to work its way across the floor. One of the nurses, an old man, who Arnold had earlier determined spoke no English, threw a metal pan over the animated lump of fungal matter. The man was screaming, Drac, 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 crossing himself. Arnold was about to shout at the man. the situation was contained when two more lumps began pushing out of the woman's body. The nurse went into a frenzy, grabbing a bottle of rubbing alcohol and pouring it over the body of the woman. Arnold's shout of horror ruptured capillaries in his vocal folds. He could taste the blood in his mouth as the nurse pulled a lighter from his scrubs and set fire to the body. Within minutes, the alcohol-rich flame had enveloped the tent, and Arnold and the other attendants were falling back to the pre-surgery area. Arnold was screaming for a fire department, fully aware that no one could understand him. The surgery tent was an inferno, and it was spreading. The Red Cross staff surged into action, moving patients away from the blaze. Without the language skills to direct the evacuation, Arnold found himself a simple laborer, going where others pointed. There were dozens in danger, and Arnold vowed that he would give the last of his strength trying to extract the wounded from a horrific death of smoke and fire. Arnold pressed his head against the glass of the car window, trying to see the edge of the dirt road as Pete maneuvered the small car around a series of boulders. The hillside fell away rapidly, mere inches past the edge of the road. It was not a sheer drop, but Arnold had grown up on the South Dakota prairie, and anything more than a 4% grade felt aggressive. At a crawling pace, Pete managed to work the car around boulders and back to the center of the rutted dirt track they had been following for nearly 30 minutes. In an abstract sense, Arnold recognized that he should have found the Transylvanian Plateau to be beautiful, but the Carpathians loomed immediately to the north and seemed vaguely dangerous. The car was a Trabant, small even by comparisons of American compact cars. The Pete and Arnold were both solidly over six feet tall, made for a mildly comical display whenever they tried to climb into or out of the car. The shocks were clearly worn out, straining under the weight of the two men, but the late 1980s East German car was otherwise in serviceable condition. Conversation had been largely one-sided as they had worked their way from Cluj to Dragovista. Pete had gamely filled the silence with stories of wild dogs roaming the streets and anti-gang community organizing on Chicago's south side. Arnold had nodded along, but his mind was elsewhere. He was certainly grateful that Pete was willing to make the trip to Dragovista, but he was not feeling social. The withdrawal from the amphetamines was almost certainly part of it. He had been prescribed a vial of a milder amphetamine and given a schedule to follow to wean his body off of the nearly two-day bender forced on him at the Red Cross camp. The detox schedule was well calibrated, and the itch was a relatively minor distraction. He shook, but it was easily disguised as the car bumped along roads that had never been paved. It was the chaos of his last surgery at the Red Cross camp that weighed heavily on his mind. He had spent several hours after the fire had been extinguished curled up on a spare cot in a horrible limbo between sleep and a soft sobbing. A number of people had died from smoke inhalation, and there was no telling how many others had died later from delayed treatment. Arnold had felt sick, knowing that his hallucination and his panic had set off such a disastrous chain of events. It was some time later that he decided to visit the site of the fire. The helicopters had stopped coming. And most of the activity at the camp involved ambulances transporting patients to hospital beds that could support longer-term recovery some parts of the camp were already being pulled down the burned portion however had largely been abandoned and arnold was able to explore the blackened area in relative silence there hadn't been much to view most of the canvas and wood had burned entirely leaving a blackish grayish powder across the ground in the surgery tent area there was shattered glass metal instruments, and a range of plastic objects that had shriveled. Arnold had made two passes around the ruins before he noticed the metal bowl on the ground, where the nurse had thrown it over the first fungal mass to climb from the woman's body. Arnold knelt by the metal bowl, wondering for the first time how he and the nurse could have shared the same hallucination. Arnold lifted the bowl slowly and carefully. He had an irrational fear that the thing, conjured by his drug-addled and sleep-deprived imagination might skitter free nothing moved as he leaned the bowl on its side what remained was a small organic lump a fraction of what he had seen climb free from the woman's abdomen arnold used a charred stick to flip the twig-shaped lump into the metal bowl he picked up a variety of abandoned surgical instruments and took the collection back to a recently cleared tent his dissection of the lump was conducted under far from ideal scientific conditions but it served two vital purposes. First, the dissection utterly dispelled Arnold's belief that he had hallucinated some strange, bulbous parasite. Second, the dissection confirmed the utter bizarreness of the organism. From what he could discern, it had the physiology of a fungus, but its location within the woman suggested some sort of parasite. When Arnold tried to account for the thing's ability to move, he conjured a new category of creature, but could find no logical place to locate it as either part of the animal kingdom or as part of the fungi kingdom. The puzzle of the thing had prompted Arnold to request the medical records for the young woman he had been operating on. It took some time to locate a clerk who both spoke English and could help him navigate the cardboard boxes of manila file folders. There was a system of sorts, but even after locating the file, Arnold remained at the clerk's mercy to help translate the scribbled notes. In the end, they were able to identify the woman as Katia Floria. Her height and weight and hair and eye color were all marked down, as was her age. The file offered little more than the kind of information one could extract from a driver's license. Aside from the woman's name, the only other useful bit of information listed was her hometown, Draga Vista. Arnold looked down at the map sitting in his lap. In theory, Dragovista lay about 15 kilometers off the E60, but the dirt track they had located had already taken nearly as long as they had spent on the highway heading northeast out of Cluj. Gotta be getting close, Pete said. Arnold nodded. Pete had grumbled when they first turned onto the dirt track, but Arnold took the remoteness of the village in stride. There were more than enough rural towns in South Dakota that struggled to keep roads paved. His grandparents had lived their entire lives at least twenty miles from the nearest stretch of asphalt. Still, a plough every four or five years was usually enough to prevent the gravel roads from becoming rutted. The dirt track they were working their way along, by contrast, was deeply rutted, not from overuse, but from rainfall, which had cut grooves across the road as water poured down the hillside. Arnold was brought out of his musings by a grunt from Pete. He looked up from the map to see a small village set in the shallow valley, a dark blue twisting river wound through the valley, with cropland and pasture clearly delineated from their vantage point. As the car descended into the valley, the specific contours of terrain were lost, and the more immediate infrastructure of the town became evident. There was no order to the streets, such as they were. Buildings were fronted by networks of dirt patches, some wide enough to count as roads, but most simply well-worn paths. The buildings were a mix of wood timbers and whitewashed plaster walls. Each house was capped with a high triangular dome of thatch. Pete navigated the car to the middle of the village, stopping not far from a central well. The car had captured the attention of locals, and a handful gathered about the well watched them with open suspicion. ''Here we go,'' said Pete as he pushed open the door and pushed his bulk up and out of the Trabi. Arnold opened his own door, a bit slower, following Pete's lead. Pete made his way toward a group of middle-aged men. As he approached, the American withdrew a pack of cigarettes. He shuffled one out and put it in his mouth, and then hollered a greeting of some sort in Romanian. The men remained wary, watching the large outsider close on them. Pete continued his good-natured introductions, which closed with an offer of a cigarette to each of the four men in the group. They took a cigarette, and Pete declined to take back the pack from the last man. Instead, he withdrew a lighter and struck flame. Pete allowed each man to light a cigarette before he lit his own. Arnold stepped toward the group that had wrapped itself in a cloud of white smoke. Arnold caught the word doctor as Pete grabbed him about the shoulder with an arm. The rest was lost on him. Unable to understand the conversation, Arnold took the measure of the men. They were small. It wasn't just that he and Pete were larger than average. They were small. The sunken eyes and protruding wrist bones suggested malnutrition rather than simply local genetics. There was a long exchange, and then the group broke up with the man who had kept the pack of cigarettes, indicating that they should follow. What's happening? Arnold asked. I asked about locals in the village who speak English and might be able to help us. There's just a woman and the priest, Papa Lupu. The priest is away at the moment, so we're going to go see the woman. What did you say we needed help with? Arnold asked. He was uncertain how to start explaining what they were after, and he didn't want to casually throw around words like parasite or disease invasive species. Don't worry, Hunt, I kept it vague. My Romanian isn't good anyway, Pete grinned, and frankly theirs isn't much better. The local man led them to a large cottage at the edge of the village. The cottage was surrounded by a crude fence of sticks woven about posts. The fence was capped with a tiny roof of thatch that Arnold assumed must be for aesthetics, as he could see no functional purpose. The fence surrounded a large garden of root vegetables, tomatoes, and spices. The local man called out and they waited for a woman to emerge before opening the gate to enter her domain. Again, Pete took the lead in making introductions and Arnold was able to study the woman. She was a solid eight inches taller than the men they had first encountered, but she shared the same sunken dark eyes and dearth of subcutaneous fat. Pete managed to negotiate the introductions and the woman waved them inside. The local man who had brought them to her pulled a cigarette from his pocket and grunted at Pete for a light before turning back to the village. Welcome, Dr. Hunt, to my home, the woman said, in clipped English. Arnold guessed that Pete had explained his language limitations and was grateful that she was willing to shift over to English. As they took seats around a small wooden table, Pete reached a hand into his coat and withdrew a small plastic bag with several dozen tea bags. Agrippina, I brought some tea to share if you would like. The woman, Agrippina, laughed. Are you English? she asked. Vodka would have been more welcome, Mr. Pete, but I will heat water. When the tea was steeping, Arnold tried to explain their reasons for visiting Dragovista. Having deliberated long and hard how to introduce the topic, he decided that it would be best to keep the story grounded firmly around Katina Floria. Arnold explained how he had treated Katina after the earthquake and that she had died. He offered a story about wanting to notify next of kin. When he was informed that Katina had been an orphan and had no siblings, Arnold pivoted to an alternate line of approach. He explained that Katina had a genetic mutation. Arnold paused to clarify if the woman understood what that meant. Agrippina snorted. I am medical doctor as well. I know what genetic mutation means. I was in med school when Watson and Crick work out double helix organization of DNA. It was capitalist biology, but we still studied it. Oh, Arnold said in surprise. He shot a sideways glance at Pete, but concluded that the woman's medical credentials were equally of surprise to him. Um. Dr., um, Dr. Reiter, Doman supplied, but no one here has ever called me Dr. Reiter. My husband was Dr. Reiter. I was Dr. Reiter's wife, or Agrippina, or Scorpy. Pete choked on his tea, and Arnold took the last term to be something less than one of local endearment. Arnold pressed ahead. It would be helpful to study any local medical records and to trace family histories. Agrippina shrugged and sipped her tea. It might be helpful she said, but there are no such records in Dragovista. There is no hospital, there is no clinic, there is no archive. People here cannot read or write. They have no need for written papers. Arnold was about to protest that a village with two doctors must have some sort of documentation, but a hand on his shoulder from Pete stayed him. What about church records? Pete asked. Baptisms, burials, weddings, that sort of thing? Agrippina sipped at her tea and considered. Papa Lupu keeps files. He has been here for twelve years, but before him I do not know for sure. I do not know how far back church records go. It might be something, it might not. Arnold was about to ask about how to gain access to the records when Agrippina spoke up. We should have another pot of tea. Then I will take you to the church. Papa Lupu is away, but his assistant Dorel will be at the church. If I ask him, he will let you to see the church records. But you must be done before dark." Arnold looked at his watch. That only gives us about five hours. Agrippina nodded and sipped her tea. Better make it four hours. There is no place for you in Dragovista when the sun goes down. You must go. Other villages have hotels, but not here. Arnold was thankful that they had left the village while the sun was still two inches above the horizon. The drive out through the dirt track had been no easier than it had been that morning, but they made the highway shortly after dark. Pete had been quiet as he maneuvered the Trabi through the myriad roadway obstructions. The car puttered up to a 100 kilometers an hour on the open road, and tension seemed to leave Pete. "'Did you notice anything strange about the village "'when you were out?' Pete asked. His tone indicated that he fully expected Arnold would have something to share. Arnold scratched his hair and then forced a hand back to his lap. He had been replaying his walk around the village in his mind, trying to make sense of what he saw." Agrippina had negotiated their access to the church records with seeming ease. The church groundskeeper had deferred to her readily, and they had been given access to a small room in the back of the wooden church. The church itself had been remarkable, both for its roof of wooden shingles rather than thatch, and for its rustic craftsmanship. Every surface was carved by crude but practiced hands. The church stood in contrast to the rest of the village, not in its construction, but in its care. The other structures were primarily functional. With minor splashes of design reflecting convention rather than innovation the church by contrast was a visual assault of detail and ornamentation arnold had quickly recognized that he would be useless in sorting through records pete could manage with the assistance of the groundskeeper with nothing useful to contribute to the search arnold had eventually opted to explore the village he had begun by escorting agrippina back to her house and then worked his way around the village circumference some houses had private gardens But there were also patches of gardens set about the outer perimeter of the village often demarcated by stone walls or woven stick fences he saw chicken coops and rabbit hutches he spotted several dairy farms on the outer periphery and noted fields of wheat potatoes and occasionally soybeans arnold had worked his way through the center of the town and noted a handful of shops and workshops he expected to see a blacksmith working a horseshoe at an anvil but there was no such scene Rather, he watched as a dozen women worked a semi-mechanized loom that churned out a stiff cloth from dozens of large spools of woolen thread. Arnold had not been able to talk to any of the locals, but he had a solid enough understanding of agriculture to offer a basic assessment of the village's economy. Strange, Arnold repeated. He rolled the question around in his mind before responding. I guess... I don't get why things are so bleak. I know communism was hard on people but the people in Dragovista are starving. Arnold caught a nod from Pete. I'm not exaggerating, Arnold said. That's a medical opinion. They're starving, and I don't know why. Arnold felt his fists clench with anger. Between the gardens and the farms, there's three times more food in that valley than the village could possibly eat. Pete set his knee to the steering wheel, pulled out a pack of cigarettes. He offered a cigarette to Arnold, who declined. Pete cranked down the driver's side window. And flicked his zippo lighter to life the cigarette blazed and pete snapped the cap on his lighter closed with a flick of his wrist did you see any kids pete asked arnold paused he considered no he said cautiously i he frowned trying to recall any residual sign of children a swing a tree fort to school there was nothing where are the kids he asked Pete sucked at the cigarette and then exhaled toward the cracked window. The differential air pressure drew the smoke from the car with near-perfect efficiency. Baptismal records stopped about 20 years ago, Pete said. Maybe, Arnold began. He was going to argue that perhaps Papalupu had been lax in keeping records, but he didn't bother to voice the idea. There were no children in Tregovista. It's weird fucking shit, Pete said as he finished off his cigarette. He flicked the glowing nub out the window and fumbled in the pocket for a second cigarette. Arnold nodded in supportive affirmation, though he knew Pete couldn't see him in the dark. The young man seemed like he needed to vent, and Arnold gave him the space to work his thoughts out. "'I found the baptismal record for Catina Floria,' Pete said. He chuckled. "'It was the first one in the file in the folder, because she was the last person baptized in Dragovista. That's crazy.' Given what Romania went through in the 1980s, there's no way. What happened in the 1980s? Arnold asked, sensing there must be some connection to the late communist policy and the demographics of Dragovista, but unable to imagine what it might be. The car was dark, save for the soft yellow bulb illuminating the instrument panel and the angry orange tip of the cigarette. The resulting illumination of Pete's face was not unlike the effect a child with a flashlight would create while telling a campfire ghost story. Lots of countries have pro-natalist policies, but Romania was on a whole different level, Pete said. In Germany, the government pays kindergeld to motivate people to have children, and abortion is illegal in Ireland. But Romania? Pete took a long pull of his cigarette. The flare of orange gave his face an angry cast. Romania did some sick shit, Pete finished. In the 1960s, birth rates started falling. Ceausescu saw Romania's economic and military future tied to population growth so he put in place some pretty aggressive policies. Abortion was outlawed, but so were contraceptives. The government tinkered with the rules over the years, but there was always the mandate that women have children. If the number was four or five, or what constituted an exception, it was all up for debate, but the idea that Romanian women would hit population growth targets was not. There were financial rewards, but there was also a whole propaganda operation built around population growth. The Romanian version of Cosmo would push stories about how married couples should have sex four or five times a week. The magazine ran horror stories about illegal abortions gone wrong and about the virtues of single motherhood as a strategy to get maximum use out of a woman's best childbearing years. There were national awards for high fertility rates. The maternal mortality rate in Romania was one of the worst in the world because peasant women tried to earn the distinction of heroin mother by birthing ten children. No, Pete corrected himself. Ten surviving children. Dead babies didn't count. Arnold shook his head in astonishment. How did I not know about this? He asked. I knew about Ireland, but... Arnold shuddered. This is on a whole different level. Pete's bitter laugh was tempered by the increasing noise of traffic as they neared Cluj. The thing is that none of it worked. At the margins it worked, but after a while people in the cities figured out how to work around the system. Pete looked like he was considering another cigarette, but eventually put his hands back on the steering wheel. Ceausescu was a stubborn bastard, and in 1984 he doubled down on the whole push to increase birth rates. It was just crazy stuff. Childless couples were hit with attacks. The government began tracking women's cycles and mandating regular gynecological exams to catch pregnancy early and stop back-alley abortions. I've heard that the government doctors were sent door-to-door to examine women of childbearing age, but I don't know how widespread that actually was. In the rural villages, the government certainly didn't have the manpower to conduct medical exams on that scale. That's utterly dehumanizing, Arnold declared. I can't believe the medical community would participate in that kind of a system. Pete shrugged. It was bad, but it set the stage for something... Pete paused. He took a deep breath. I was going to say it set the stage for something worse, but I don't know if that's true. How do you weigh the balance of human suffering and declare one trauma less than another? Arnold recognized the question and had no answer. It was one he had thought about a lot after his short stint as a Red Cross trauma surgeon. As a surgeon, he had simply needed to balance haste against doing the task right. But in the pre surgery tents, men and women were making choices about who would be given a chance at life and who would need to wait. There was no solution. Arnold shook off the memories of that night and realized that Pete had started talking again. With illegal abortion closed off, the orphanages were flooded with babies. After communism fell, orphanages began to set up agreements with international adoption agencies. The whole thing turned into kind of a money grab, and there was some super sketchy shit. Kids just kind of disappeared into a weird confluence of state orphanages, foreign adoption agencies, and capitalism. Arnold took a deep breath. He let it out. He trusted Pete's accounts was correct, and it was horrible. And mad. He tried to imagine a young woman, pushed into pregnancy by the state, Struggling, trusting the state to help, only to have a child disappear into international markets. Arnold multiplied the pain of that one young woman by a factor of ten, by a hundred, by a thousand, by the hundreds of thousands. He felt sick. Do you think that's what happened to the children of Dragovista? Arnold asked. Were they put in an orphanage or sold or contracted for by an international agency? Pete shrugged. The timeline doesn't really work. Arnold nodded, trying to map out the sequence in his mind. Katina Floria had been in her mid-teens, so whatever had afflicted the village had occurred in the 1980s. So what happened, he asked. The hell if I know, Pete replied. Thank you for listening to Hunt in the Romanian Hills. The conclusion will be released in late April or early May. In the meantime, there's lots of background content at the Chronicles of